Welcome to the Elevate Together podcast, voices of change in the business of law. Hello, this is Nicole Giantonio, the head of global marketing at Elevate. The podcast episode you're about to hear is part of our expert series featuring Elevate's president, John Croft, hosting a conversation on his expert topic, deliberate equitability and inclusion. John's guest for this episode was awarded her OBE in the 2021 New Year's Honors List. Joanne Monk is recognized for her services to transgender equality. During this episode, you'll hear Joanne's story about her tireless work in support of the transgender community and how best to ensure the comfort of transgender individuals in the workplace. Joanne, thank you so much for joining me today. And I'm really looking forward to our conversation on deliberate equitability and inclusion. I have been lucky enough to speak to a few people on this topic so far, and we've covered things like gender pay gaps in the law and various other topics that I feel I'm very familiar with. But I have to admit that the the transgender world is something that I'm not at all familiar with until you and I spoke the other day. So I'm really looking forward to learning a lot on this podcast. And just to help me and anyone that's listening, if you could start off just telling us about your personal story. By all means, David, my previous name's born in 1955. He At the time of his birth, a tree was planted. And as that tree would grow, the roots would provide sustenance to the tree. But the roots were never his. They belonged to Joanne. Joanne was trapped inside him, but she would feed through those roots her thoughts and emotions throughout his life until he released her from the prison that essentially she found herself in. David was very quiet. He was very inward. He remembers the early days at school when all his friends were girls. He didn't like doing things that other boys did, like climbing trees and kicking a football around and falling in muddy ditches. And he was very lonely. And he would think about his life, probably from about the age of five, He realized that something was different about him. His mother had a dressing up box of her old clothes. He used to wear them all the time. And when he did, he felt comfortable. And that was Joanne's influence. That was her basically giving him her thoughts as to how he should be. But of course, in in the 19, early 1960s, then the word transgender wasn't even in the dictionary, let's face it. And for David to go and tell his parents, who were quite authoritarian, he would have never lived it down. They'd have, I don't know what their reaction would have been. I really don't. He went to school. He was bullied constantly at school. And I think that was because people probably picked on him because they realized that there was something about him that didn't quite fit into the male, I suppose, the what was expected of a male, how he joined in or didn't join in with things. And of course, he didn't. That was pretty much his early life. He was dressing all the time. When he left school with little or no qualifications, he went to work on a farm. In his 20s, by that age anyway, he was buying his own clothes under the pretext of buying them for a girlfriend. And it was really strange. And this All these thoughts that Joanne were putting into his mind were almost like 
a virus, and I know we're going through COVID at the moment. For David, this virus was something that he felt he could never cure. And every time he tried to become more macho to do the things that were expected of him by society in those days, this virus would just get stronger and stronger. And he used to get rid of the clothes, but then Joanne's thoughts would flood back into his mind and he'd start all over again. And he ended up about 1977 with a nervous breakdown. And he was referred to a a sexual psychologist because by that time he knew what was going on. This psychologist just said, oh, rubbish. Just go and read the magazines on the top shelf. You'll be fine. That was the last thing that David wanted to hear. He started dating girls. He dated them more because he wanted to be like them rather than he wanted to be with them. Eventually, he got married. This was in 1982. He got married because, again, that was what was expected of him. And he was constantly trying to fight this enemy that was inside him because that's what it felt like. Two boys were born who David absolutely loved to pieces. And it was difficult. His wife was very domineering. He wanted to dress, but if he wanted to dress, he had to do it in private. And that was the whole of his life, was doing things in private so that people didn't pick up on what was happening to him, how he felt. And it was destroying him. Inside, he was emotionally dying, but he was physically dying as well. Joanne's thoughts were getting so strong. It was just driving him crazy. Through the marriage, he did all sorts of macho things to try and prove to himself or validate, in a way, his existence. And he did that validation by, for example, he became a part-time firefighter, but he never fit in. And he didn't fit in because he was trying to do something that really he shouldn't be doing. And he did all sorts of things like that. He used to race model powerboats because he thought that was a macho thing to do. He joined the territorial army. But every time it was the same thing. For him, he was fighting this virus. He was fighting Joanne. Her thoughts were just so powerful. She wouldn't let him carry on. Eventually, his wife died. Would he have stayed in the marriage had she not? I think, honestly, probably not. But he stayed in the marriage out of a sense of guilt almost to his wife and a sense of absolute deep love for his two boys. But his wife died in the year 2000. She died. Um, She was alcoholic. It was a traumatic time. But David then felt that he could be free. But of course, he wasn't because he was still trying to validate his life as a male. And it wasn't until 2014, when he went and sat on the edge of a cliff at a local beauty spot, Beachy Head, to reflect on his life. He wouldn't have jumped. It's a well-known suicide spot, but he wouldn't have jumped. He just went up there to think because for him, that was what that particular beauty spot was associated with. And shortly afterwards, he made the decision to transition to become female. And at that point, it was almost like 
somebody had unzipped the whole of the front of his body and out came Joanne. And then the tree was chopped down, but the roots were still there. Joanne's roots were there and Joanne was going to grow her own tree. She was going to validate her own life. So I changed my name by deed poll. I saw my GP. I was put on a course of hormones and eventually had gender surgery in 2017. And that was a big, big stage for me. I'm now legally female. I applied for something called a gender recognition certificate. And at that point, I was granted a new birth certificate. My tax records and everything else were changed automatically. And everything that I had, all legal documents, bank accounts, they all were changed to my current name. I felt that I suppose because of what I'd been through, I wanted to support particularly the transgender community. And I started doing a lot of voluntary work for organisations such as Sussex Police, the Crown Prosecution Service, the Bluebell Heritage Railway. I became a Stonewall Schools role model. I'm a national diversity mentor. In actual fact, I'm now a global mentor. And last year, I was nominated for a Rising Star Award with an organisation called We Are The City, which is a national award process. And I was nominated for the diversity category, much to my surprise, and I won it. And after it had been done, I was going to sit down and she said, no, stay there, Joanne. And I did. And she came back and she presented me with the chief constable's commendation for service and support to Sussex Police and the CPS as a volunteer. And then, of course, what happened in, at the end of this year, I received a letter in a brown envelope at the beginning of December from the Cabinet Office, and I was notified that I had been recommended to Her Majesty the Queen for the honour of an OBE for services to transgender equality. And that just blew me away. That is an amazing story. And look, many congratulations. As you know, that's how we met each other, because I saw your announcement and was impressed and contacted you. And that's how we came to be chatting here today. So congratulations. What an amazing personal story. You know, you talked about school and your family life. How, from a work point of view, has your experience been of being treated through that journey that you've just been telling us about? Well, initially, of course, before I transitioned, nobody knew. Once I transitioned, I have a gardening business. And once I had this acceptance, had this understanding that this is who I was going to be, I told all my customers, I told friends, I told colleagues for the organizations that I work for. And their overall reaction was, that's great. We will support you. And we're always here for you. And I didn't really get any negativity from it, even from my family and even my father. When I told him, he said, oh, I understand. And I think he probably knew, if I'm honest. Generally, the support was absolutely amazing, particularly from the organizations. I, I started off some of my voluntary work as a community first responder for Southeast Coast Ambulance Service. And I told them that I was transitioning and they asked me to be a diversity champion. They have a, a diversity champion network within their organization. They had people from different diverse communities. They might have been BAME, 
religion, faith, gender, LGBT. And we used to meet every two or three months and go through things, but we were there to support colleagues within the organization that may have been struggling with similar issues that we'd been through. So we were a point of contact and that made a big impact. Sadly, I had to leave in 2016 because of a serious medical condition. And that's when I diverted my attention to Sussex Police and the CPS. As I said right at the beginning, we talk at Elevate about a deliberate equitability and inclusion. We, rather than talking about diversity and inclusion, which most people talk about, our thinking is that that's the outcome that we're after. And if we can create an equitable and inclusive organization, then the output will be um, a diverse group of people. What would you advise us from the transgender community point of view? What advice could you give us about how to be sort of deliberate in our equitability and inclusion around the transgender community? I think, first of all, we've got to clarify, deliberate is a meaningful intention to do something. Includability, I probably think of as someone's personal ability to accept equality. The thing with the transgender community is that we have to remember that they suffer from mental health. And let's face it, with the COVID pandemic, for them, that's a double whammy. So they're getting mental health issues from being locked down. They can't attend appointments with doctors and clinics. And then they're having the effect of being lonely on their own because of COVID. So I think it's very important to be completely equitable and deliberately equitable is that organizations have support networks in place where somebody that's going through transition can talk to an individual without fear. And this is really important, without fear of being discriminated against. And sadly, in in a lot of organizations, this happens all too frequently. And it needs, in a sense, somebody who is extremely knowledgeable with equitability, inclusion, diversity, equality, knows the laws. In the UK, we do have a couple of laws regarding diversity. One is the Equality Act of 2010, and then there's the Public Sector Equality Act as well. This person, whether it be male, female, needs to be totally responsible for that side of equitability within the organization rather than perhaps have it as part of his or her remit and then deprioritize it and perhaps pass it down to HR and then it just gets forgotten. So these support networks for the transgender community are very, very important for A, allowing them to progress through their transition without being discriminated against. And we can pick on what happened in the United States when um, President Trump was in power. He stopped transgender people serving in the forces. That's what it's like. But if those support networks are there, particularly transgender people can feel comfortable in the workplace. They know that there's somebody they can approach. They know there's somebody they can talk to. They know that somebody will listen to them if they've got mental health problems and they'll be accepted. And that's what it's all about. You've mentioned 
the Crown Prosecution Service and a couple of other organizations that you've worked with. So for those of us like me, that it's outside of my comfort zone. What could some practical things that we could all do to help improve this at, at our organization and to anyone else that's listening? Well, any organization, I think the first thing is to understand what unconscious bias is. And in a way, I'd like to see unconscious bias training mandatory in every single organization. And just to briefly say, unconscious bias is something that we all have. It's usually peer taught and it gives an automatic reaction to a situation that an individual isn't comfortable with. So if we look at the transgender community, they may have been taught by parents, by friends. Oh, you know, they're really weird people. Oh, no, you don't want to associate with them. So when they see somebody that they perceive as being transgender, and let's face it, it's not just male to female, it can be female to male as well. They have this automatic reaction and immediately block them off. I think the first thing is for an organization to have this unconscious bias training so everybody knows how they can control it because you can control it, but you can only control it if you understand. And then we look at something like microaggressions. And it's also important to understand about microaggressions within an organization. And microaggressions are usually passing remarks. And it might be I'm walking down a corridor and I hear, or within my earshot, somebody says, oh, he's really funny. He's a woman, but he's not a woman. He's a man. That's a microaggression. But if I hear it, it's like hate to me. Somebody does, just does not understand. Then we can go on to having within an organization have a number of role models. And these are publicized within the organization. So the organization makes it clear this person is a role model for transgender. This person is a role model for lesbian, gay, bisexual, BAME, faith. And they're people that can be approached. These are people that we will use within our organization to create almost an awareness throughout the whole of the working staff within that organization so that they understand that these people are human beings because that's what we are. We're human beings and we deserve the right to be treated with dignity and respect. And there's a lot of other things that they can do as well, particularly for the transgender community, just basic things like gender neutral toilet facilities. Does a transgender woman who hasn't had surgery feel comfortable in using female washrooms? And likewise, for somebody that's transitioning from female to male, do they feel comfortable using male washrooms? So provide them with gender-neutral facilities or have gender-neutral facilities as a priority in the whole of the organization so they feel comfortable. And it's all about making those members of staff feel comfortable, make them feel wanted, in your experience, what's it been like implementing this? Is this been relatively easy in the police forces and the Crown Prosecution Service and others? Or has it been felt like pushing water uphill for you? Where would you say the examples that you've given and people's attitudes and their unconscious bias, where would you say we're sort of at on the spectrum at the moment? We've got a long way to go. In a recent poll by Gallup conducted in 2020, over a quarter of 
transgender people that were asked to do this survey said that they had transphobic hate in the workplace. A quarter. I personally find that hard to believe. I don't know what the situation is in a lot of these organisations. See, a lot of organisations will say they're inclusive, but they actually aren't. I do work with Sussex Police and the first advisory panel I joined for Sussex Police was something called their Trans External Reference Group. And I joined that as a transgender woman. And because of my input into this group, I've enabled Sussex Police to, first of all, understand what it's like to be transgender. Secondly, to bust the myths around it, allow them to engage with community groups, allow them to understand what it's like to accept that a transgender person is just another person. And this is what it's all about. Crown Prosecution Service. I was the recipient, unfortunately, of some very vitriolic hate on Twitter two years ago. And it was something that, to be honest, nearly finished me doing the work that I do. Anybody can post anything on social media and there's no real repercussions from it. And I don't think that will change for a long time. So the social media platforms have got a lot to answer for. And in the same survey where a quarter of the people had transphobic hate in the workplace, almost double the number had hate on social media. And that compounds back into mental health and everything else. It's all about educating the older generation. My work with the Heritage Railway fairly near me called Bluebell Heritage Railway. When I first went there as Joanne, I had looks, I had not the dead naming, but the misuse of pronouns. And I was determined, absolutely determined to change that. And I did it by being really positive about the way that I engaged with other people that work there, particularly the older generation. And now I'm the ID advisor and I am respected. Apart from anything else, I'm respected. And I think that's what we have to aim for. And this is what organisations have to aim for, to respect everybody. That's been amazing. I'm conscious that we're coming up on our time here. You've just talked about helping people understand and bust some of the myths around the transgender community. And I certainly feel that you've been very helpful to me in that regard. Congratulations, obviously, again on your OBE. You've said a couple of times we're obviously all locked down at the moment, but when are you going to be able to go and visit Buckingham Palace and actually get your medal? How long's a piece of string is the answer to that? I mean, hopefully, I'll get my COVID vaccine in the next few weeks, which will obviously help. I have been told by the cabinet office that it's not likely to be until the summer. And if they physically can't do it, it'll be done via the Lord Lieutenant of Sussex, who's a representative of the Queen. But it'd be nice to go to Buckingham Palace, definitely. It definitely would. Thank you very, very much for joining us today. I've really enjoyed speaking with you. And good luck at Buckingham Palace when you finally get there. Thank you very much, John. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. Tune in to the next episode of the Elevate Together podcast. Available on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, and ElevateServices.com.